Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. I'd like to remind you that you can go to WealthFormula.com and get a subscription, I guess, to the weekly wealth widget. This is the format in which I'm sending out small morsels of personal financial information once a week so that you can slowly but surely build your financial IQ. You can also get a copy of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, as a PDF now for free. I mean, as you may recall, that was a Amazon number one bestseller, and now you can get it for free. Just go to wealthformula.com and click the icon. Also, our sponsor, smallchange.com, has an active offering going on right now. You can invest in net zero townhouses in Los Angeles or energy efficient, affordable housing in Washington, D.C. So both of these offerings have a 10% projected return with full return of interest and capital anticipated in 12 months. Go to smallchange.com and check that out. So last week's show with Chris Martinson, of course, was very popular, and I'm not surprised. And Chris has done his research, right? He's done his research on sort of a financial world in a country in particular, and he thinks we're in trouble. And he also gives us some solutions about how we can potentially approach the world as he sees it coming our way. And for me, the biggest takeaways were related to some of his insights on what to do about this and about building resilience, specifically the things that I really resonated with were social and cultural capital. I mean, even if the world does not end up going into sort of hell in a handbasket, we can all benefit from improving our quality of life through living where we want to live and having closer relationships. In fact, did you know that several studies have actually shown that the biggest single factor associated with happiness is not, in fact, money, but rather the quality of relationships a person has? So, you know what? We evolved and we evolved as people who lived in tribes and depended on one another to live. So it makes sense then that being around other people and having close relationships would make us happy. The problem is that modern living in the U.S. at least is becoming less and less tribal and more and more lonely. 
I bet that has a lot to do with the high rates of depression, especially in larger metropolitan areas. Anyway, the point is that I think Chris Martinson's solutions are not only useful for the quote-unquote zombie apocalypse, but also for everyday living. As for Chris's arguments on the economy, well, it's hard to argue with a lot of this stuff. I mean, he's done his homework. However, I will say that the idea of peak oil and the role of fossil fuel depletion leading to, you know, the significant global recession or depression, that is, you know, it's compelling, but it's not shared by everyone. I mean, some people say that his prediction significantly underestimates the acceleration of technology, and it wouldn't be the first time that's happened. In 1798, for example, there was Thomas Malthus, who I'm sure some of you smart folks out there remember from school, and he wrote an essay on the principle of population. So Malthus' theory was that increased food production led to population growth, which would then overutilize those sources of food until they couldn't anymore because of famine and disease. And it usually happened in lower classes. So effectively, this whole loop limited population growth as a whole. So that was the whole theory. Well, we know what happened with that theory. So the Earth's population today is about 7 billion. 200 years ago, around the times of Malthus, it was less than a billion. So in fact, the UN estimates, now this is crazy, 6.5% of all people ever born are alive right now. In Malthus's case, he ended up underestimating technological advances, which allowed humans to keep ahead of population curve. Is it possible that those who subscribe to the future peak oil depletion economy might be doing the same? Well, it's certainly possible. And if that's the case, it's likely that solar energy will be one of the major solutions to the peak oil problem. And when we come back, Brian Bursich of Wonder Capital will tell us why. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest is Brian Bursick. Now, Brian is the CEO of Wonder Capital, and Wonder Capital is a financial technology company that's based out of Boulder, Colorado. They won the U.S. Department of Energy 2014 Sunshot Challenge as well as COSIA's 2015 Summit Award. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So I know Wonder is all about solar energy right now, and so tell us why solar, why now? Yeah, absolutely. Why now has all to do with the cost of solar, which has been decreasing very regularly, a lot like Moore's Law and semiconductors, but it's been reducing in cost for about 10% a year since 1975. For a lot of that time, it was simply going from very, very expensive to very expensive (laughs) as compared to traditional sources, uh, let's call them. And what's really exciting is in the last five years and then looking forward five years ahead, that cost curve has finally gotten to the point where people are going solar. They're putting solar on their roofs or on their properties. And in our case, businesses and hospitals and schools and municipalities, uh, that's what we do, are going solar because they're saving money, because it's a really good economic deal. And, you know, what's really exciting about that in the solar industry is, you know, that flip from you have to pay a little more to feel good. That's a tough sell. There's a market for that, but it's certainly a minority of investors and consumers, certainly of businesses. To a you can save money and do right by the environment at the same time, which you know ninety five percent of people are at least interested in hearing more about. So that's why now, 
And for solar, I think the really exciting thing and the thing to maybe realize makes a difference in other renewable sources like wind, that solar is really the only energy source that you can scale efficiently to the size of a home or a commercial building or a warehouse. You know, running your own natural gas facility or coal generation facility or even wind again where the turbines are enormous is just not practical. And so there's an exciting way also in which taking hold of your own power generation, less reliant on the grid, generating in the way that you want, that's never really happened before. That hasn't been something people have been able to do. And so I do think that's also categorically exciting about solar along with, of course, the the economic benefit. Yeah. So can you dive a little bit more into economic benefit? I mean, for cost comparison, I mean, right now, what does it look like when you compare solar energy cost per whatever unit you want to use compared to traditional oil and gas generated stuff? Sure. Yeah. So there are a lot of ways to look at that. One of which, and you know, I think most frequently customers of solar look at, what's the monthly utility bill I'm paying now? And can I reduce that number by virtue of investing in solar or becoming a solar customer? And so if you're looking at that monthly cost viewpoint, you're probably going to be working with someone, whether it's a financing entity or someone like Solar City, to get some monthly payment that is, again, lower than what you pay the utility, right? So that's kind of the mark you're hitting. It could be a loan. It could be a power purchase agreement. If you're capable, the best ROI for you is actually to go ahead and buy it. And so what we see there, if you're looking at the I'm going to purchase them as opposed to the cost analysis, is that these systems now are the panels are warranty for 25 years, and we'll often see system payback. So if you put down $100,000, you would be paid back on that and then only see profit afterwards. Somewhere between year five and year seven is what we like to see. So the total ROI on the project, if you can make that initial investment, is fantastic. And that's why, frankly, people like Wonder can come in and play the role of turning that into a monthly payment, still having them save money, and having some financing costs right for our investors. So when you talk um, about that, so, Brian, are you talking about like some of these Tesla boards and that sort of thing that are able to harness energy for individual homes? Or are you talking about sort of on a larger scale? Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm talking about here is individual homes and businesses. Frankly, the large scale, the utility scale solar generation is also very competitive and very exciting. But the opportunities, I think, for investors are fairly limited there because, frankly, Building and financing a large utility-scale solar system relative to a utility-scale natural gas or coal, very large deals, very specialty finance, very well-understood and credit-worthy off-takers, which is to say borrowers that utilities generally are playing that role. So we don't see a big opportunity for investors there. We're focused on this opportunity created, never really been the case, of financing energy generation, not of these huge centralized sources, but for you know, homeowners and for us, really for businesses to hospitals, schools, municipalities, all the non-residential entities. So we think for investors, because that discrepancy in the opportunity and how well serviced they are by traditional financing, we see most of the opportunity on the ground, on location, a rooftop, or sometimes on the property nearby, but generally rooftop systems. Sure. So you talked a lot about sort of the cost, and that's why now is appropriate for solar. And presumably those costs will continue to come down, et cetera. What are some of the limitations outside of the cost? I mean, is certainly battery technology, et cetera, are those types of things keeping up? Yeah, that's a really important distinction in kind of two phases of solar's growth. Solar without any help from battery technology or anything else can 
comfortably get to let's call it 40 to 50 percent of electricity generation and basically work within the confines of the current utility system top-down centralized model they'll have to kind of understand how to call trade electrons between more sources but solar doesn't need any help getting to what's called 50 percent of generation which would be several doublings from where it is today there is some point at which because solar you know, happens in the day and not at night you either have to be able to store that power through something like battery jets, or need some other source of counterbalancing. Wind's actually a great way to counterbalance solar. It tends to blow particularly hard at night, interestingly enough, and counterbalance the solar nicely. But it's hard to get too far above that if you don't have something else counterbalancing, again, lack of generation at night. You know, to your point, one of the ways you can see solar going higher is if you have all these batteries you know, running around for transportation purposes, but showing up at places of work and homes through the day in predictable ways, you can perhaps use these batteries kind of showing up on the grid, if you will, electric vehicles to harness that solar energy and increase that percentage that solar could be of the total. Solve some of that creation during the day, not at night problem, right? So that's how batteries play with solar, but solar is certainly not reliant over the next five to 10 years and growing very meaningfully without any battery that path is relatively clear. And just to be clear, going on that point, you know, our customers in the vast majority of what we see, this is not people going off the grid. This is people taking it's 100 units you know, of electricity, $100 they were buying from the utility, taking that down to 20 or 30, relying on the utility basically for backup power, and then trying to replace the extra 60 or 70 with cleanly generated solar that they're also saving money on. But they're very much still on the grid and drawing down power from the grid. So just sort of thinking about this, recently I had a chance to talk to Adam Taggart and Chris Martinson from Prosper, and they talk a lot about peak oil and that sort of thing. And part of their concern and their thesis is really about our inability to get these alternative energies up to snuff before there's a crisis point in oil. I mean, do you see that, you know, from your perspective in terms of the rate of technology, are you seeing that time frame crunch the way they might? Yeah, and it's worth calling out for folks that don't live and breathe it every day that the transportation market, which is predominantly oil of various types, and the electricity generation market, where rooftop solar really plays, forever had no connection for a very long time. One dominated by oil, the other by coal, and increasingly natural gas. And not a lot of fungibility, if you will, between not a lot of people using coal to get around, not a lot of oil being used for electricity generation, instead of islands, frankly. The electric car puts those two things together, or more squarely, it takes some of the energy needed transportation and throws the electricity market, right? And so if you think we're going to get our arms into the climate change issue, if you think we're going to be ready to transition whenever hydrocarbons start getting too expensive to pull out of the earth, right, which probably happens before they quote-unquote run out, they probably just get really, really hard to get to. Right. But what we need to do basically, and this is Elon Musk, so I'm stealing this from Musk, is take that transportation sector and pull as much of it as we possibly can into electricity generation by virtue of using electricity to get cars around because we have pretty clear line of sight to solar and wind being a real solution in terms of creating carbon or having growing and healthy economy, right? That we need to delink those things. And I think solar and wind have really good lines of sight, at least increasing a lot before they run up against current technological barriers. That's not really clear in the transportation market. And what Tesla's doing is incredibly exciting, but by volume of cars sold, EVs are still far, far, far behind where wind and solar are, frankly, as a percentage of electricity generation put in this year, or last year, I should say. So I am concerned about oil 
like kind of getting us off oil and getting the transportation market over into electricity than I am about the electricity market going cleaner or hopefully eventually just clean, right? Right, right. I'm curious about what you're finding to be political climate for solar energy right now. Certainly having government and tax regulations, et cetera, that are friendly to solar are going to help that market. And obviously there was some high profile failures, namely, you know, Solyndra. What's the climate like for solar out there? Do you feel the support of government? Is there support for it or is it more of a fossil fuel kind of government still? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, there are a couple of ways the government kind of touches our space and some are well-funded and important and some, I think, play less than folks may realize. The only meaningful federal support for solar right now is something called the investment tax credit and a tax credit whereby the owner of the solar system once built gets a percentage of the solar cost credited against their next tax bill. That is something that was in this kind of 2016, sometimes called Do Nothing Congress, that the extension of that investment tax credit from the end of 2016, when it was set to expire, through 2022, was kind of one of the few bipartisan things that got through. And that has a lot to do with the fact that, A, solar creates an incredible amount of jobs. Solar is now over 300,000 jobs. The coal industry employs 50,000. And a lot of the states where people might perceive, politically might not support renewable energy, perceived to be this was more of a liberal cause. It's been a huge job here. It's great blue-collar jobs. It is supported in pretty incredible ways in polls, kind of across the political spectrum. So sure. that tax credit has already been extended to 2022. Frankly, that gets solar well out of the need of, of any kind of subsidy. And there would have to be part of the omnibus budget bill, which is heavily negotiated. And rehorse trading that would be quite a political act, particularly you know, approved and funded again by a Republican-led Congress. So that feels pretty good as it relates to the things that on a day-in, day-out change the economics of our systems. You know, but I think the broader question that you raised about is solar a healthy industry? Is this something we should continue to support? You know, I would just look to the way in which the government has been, during that period that I described, it was going from very, very expensive to very expensive. The government played that critical role when the private markets couldn't step in and have really long timeframes with, you know, basic R&D and support for solar for specialized usage for military and space and these sorts of things. Solar is really past the period where it needs a lot of government support and buttress. And the ways I was describing it, just the costs have fallen again and again and again, and it's finally got to that threshold point where basically in the U.S. today, if you live in an expensive power state, and happy to speak to which those are, solar just makes economic sense. And so I think that flip just removes a lot of the political implications, right, of that supporter lack thereof. We've kind of gotten it past that point where government plays such a key role, and I think the private markets are going to keep it going at this point. Right. And in the last five years, we've had a 58% year-over-year growth rate in solar. In 2016, this is a very little fact with their government numbers, solar contributed more energy capacity to the grid than natural gas in the United States, despite this fracking revolution that we hear so much about. So solar really has gotten to the point where federal support is not the lifeblood that it once was. Yeah. One thing that I find, though, it's interesting is, and I don't know if this is just because the oil and gas, that sectors politically has a lot of power, but they know the tax benefits that those guys get on that end, they don't seem to quite equate to the benefits that, that you get as an investor, at least in not speaking to your specific fund there, but in general. So that's kind of what I was wondering about. It just seems like there still seems to be quite a bit of strength from the lobbyists from the oil and gas side, but 
there's a lot of subsidy on the, on the hydrocarbon side. And I think, you know, if you're an investor in ExxonMobil, right. they've had several years where they've been the most profitable corporation entity in the world and didn't pay taxes. So that flowed to the bottom line, increased dividends. So I think investors sure. saw those benefits and securing energy for our economy is important, right? Yeah. So I'm not arguing against those subsidies. But the thing is, the price right now, the competitive market includes all the subsidies, right? And solar is still beating them. Right. And so unless they get big increase in subsidy, which I think politically is, you know, we'll see, but that actually working through the system of wholesale global energy prices, which is absolutely, of course, a global market. And so our supply and demand curve you know, moves it a portion, but not the way it would if it was the U.S. market. And then that working its way all the way through to the customer and the retail electricity price, that's a pretty long steps in curve yeah. until you start messing with the value prop of some business in Florida, we just put a rooftop on and pays 18 cents an hour. Right. So there's also some steps between kind of our market and the real on the ground building of solar projects and some of the stuff happening in those markets. So tell us a little bit about Wonder Capital. So in a nutshell, it's often easy to use anecdotes you know, of other companies folks might know. We're trying to do with connecting people to individuals that were looking to borrow, that worked at Lending Club and Prosper and those sorts of folks did in that space and the odds. We're looking to do that for businesses that are looking to go solar. So basically, we have 112 partners across the country. Think of our relationship with them as they are the auto dealership. They're out marketing, selling cars, bringing people through the sales funnel, getting to a quote. At that point, we're the financing option they bring in to say, if you don't want to make that big, albeit best ROI, but very costly upfront cash purchase, if you'd like to look at what a monthly payment would look like for this through a financing, we have a partner who may be interested. So our run rate right now is getting over $200 million of businesses coming to us saying we're interested in putting solar on our facilities because, again, in 98% of the time, that's driven by it, saving them money. And we're connecting them with individual accredited investors through our site, with family offices and high net worths and other folks, which are private client groups that we run, and then we do institutional partners that participate in the market as well. This is interesting because it's actually a way for businesses that have nothing to do with solar, who want to be effectively be net zero, be creating their own power to just be able to purchase that equipment. So you're just financing that equipment for businesses. I mean, it could be a company that makes donuts, right? What size of businesses typically do you deal with? Yeah, so oftentimes there's a pretty good correlation between kind of the size and type of business. So even though we are doing this for not the, the Walmarts and the Apples of the world who are, are fine finding their own financing, frankly, we're also not doing it for, for very small business. So systems that we're financing are between a quarter million dollars generally. And that kind of systems to give a sense for listeners, a $250,000 system is something like 12 to 15 times the size of good three to four bedroom suburban home system. So this is not a, a restaurant or a barbershop. This is a relatively large facility. We like to do three, four, five-story commercial office space, which are great for us. The warehouses, multi-tenant retail, commercial retail, which are hopefully the big box kind of anchor store. We've done, for example, a Michael's and other multi-tenant with the scale and the size that we're operating in. Right. So in terms of collateral, so the loans that are made from the investor side, presumably the debt is collateralized by the actual the solar equipment that's been placed. Is that right? Yeah, that's precisely right. I think that there's a really interesting wrinkle though there. And yeah, it's well understood by the commercial borrowing community. The collateralizing the use of proceeds just makes sense, right? If I help you buy equipment, if equipment financing, you don't pay me shit on it. So it's, you're capable of working with high quality business structure and it's well understood. The, the wrinkle though that's really interesting, and you know, I have to give credit where it's due, SolarCity really 
perfected this, identified and perfected this. But, you know, I think the initial instinct is to say, okay, I own that hardware, just like equipment financing. I'm going to go get it and sell it somehow on a secondary market. You can do that, but that's not the best path to monetization and using the asset backing to get the highest recovery value. What you actually want to do is exercise your ownership rights to take it, make sure that you signed a property attached site lease that gives you the right to get there, right? But leave it on a space. And if you've structured your deal in such a way that you are the cheapest electricity available of that building, the only reason that someone's going to stop paying you and go back to the more expensive utility is that they are authentically bankrupt, right? If it's not a default driven by choosing between things, should the cheapest power or they need power, if they stop paying you, it's very likely they're also going to leave the facility. Right. Is it easy to move? I mean, I guess this is getting in a little bit into the weeds, but I'm just curious how hard it is to move one of these solar devices from one place to another if you're essentially repoing it. Right. So, so this is the beautiful recall. Although you have the right to do that, to remove it, what you actually want to do is make sure that you are in facilities, or in the case of solar city homes, that are in low vacancy areas. In other words, that someone else will move into that facility who need electricity, and you've already structured your financing in a system such that it's savings relative to utility costs. You wait until there's a new customer. Think of it instead of a piece of hardware as 25 years of electricity revenue right. into a very specific, into one bill, right? For a small business that generates electricity, they can only sell to one customer. And you go to that new customer and you say, I own an electricity generation machine on your roof. Would you like to save 10, 15, 20% relative to the utility? And what SolarCity showed is they got 81 cents on the dollar in default executing that strategy because people were willing to take about a 10% discount relative to the utility price, and so that's 10 cents. And the other nine cents for them was you know, sales costs and that vacancy period between default of the original borrower and someone else moving in and becoming a customer. So it's not intuitive, I think, to go there, but that actually is the best path and makes solar, frankly, a much better asset to have collateralized in your loan than if you had to rip it off and sell it. Right, right. Makes sense. So in terms of returns, what kind of returns do people look at? Obviously, you can't guarantee anything, but when you're effectively providing loans, what kind of returns can you expect? Yeah, absolutely. The way we do this is we launch funds, and those funds are meant to issue debt in a fairly narrow window and then sell notes to investors where the obligations to investors are covered by those loans. And so the vast majority of what we're putting out is our most recent fund. We launched in July of 2016. And that fund offers a note that yields a projected 8.5% return and has a seven-year term. So think of it as being kind of the bank side of a mortgage. We're getting some piece of principal back over time. And you know, given they pay you, you're made whole against that projected. Now, to be clear, we're taking that capital and then turning around and making loans at 85 to 9% over a seven-year term, such that those monthly payments from the borrowers match up to the investor projected returns. However, if there's more than a little bit of default, just like with a lending club or a prosper, right, there's nothing standing behind that besides, of course, the solar projects we just talked about, right? But it's basically the performance of this loan portfolio. We're building just a little bit north, about 25 basis points across the portfolio to our EV4. So a portfolio of about 8.75% projected and with notes that are 8.5% projected. We should be really clear about the fact if that portfolio doesn't perform well, that does impact the, the notes. That's kind of by design. You're paired to that portfolio. The nice thing that I think we've done, and you've seen Lending Club and Prosper and some of those folks move more to, is because it's a fund structure, when you buy into that fund, 
you are diversified against all of those cash flow streams coming through the loan portfolio. And since July, we already have more than 3,000 commercial solar projects contracted to be into that fund. So basically, as soon as you invest in that node, it's not a one-to-one relationship where you're putting all of your chips on one project. We've built a basically automatic diversification across the actively managed fund portfolio. That makes sense. And actually, effectively, you've got sort of fractional debt on multiple units, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And so how do you go about investing? Is it an online world thing or how does it work? Yeah. Wondercapital.com is our investment portal. Most of our accredited individuals that invest in the funds have simply come through that process. There's a lot of information once you create an account which is you know, one of the requirements of the SEC is to put certain things behind some sign-ins. But we also have, as I mentioned, anywhere on the portal, you can set up time to talk with one of our team members. We understand this is sometimes a complicated and complex decision. So we also make ourselves available to get on the phone with our investors or send additional materials and be reactive. So we do have the website, but also if you reach out to us, you've got chat on the website. We understand that sometimes you want to get someone on the phone. So respectful of that as well. So as I understand it, it was open to credit investors only, which is, as everybody knows, it's $200,000 per year as an individual or 300000 as if you're filing jointly or a $1 million net worth outside of your residence. So how can we learn more about Wonder Capital? By the way, it's Wonder with a U, right? So I just want to make that clear because people might be going to Wonder Woman kind of type of spelling there, but it's Wonder with a U, <laughs> WonderCapital.com. If you type in wondercapital.com, you know, you actually will get redirected. So oh, okay. So that was smart. Yeah. Go crazy with O's or U's. Yeah. <laughs> Spell it phonetically and then you'll get there. Go to wondercapital.com. There's lots of information there. Brian, thanks for being on the show today. And we'll be right Thank back. Thank you so much. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you can appreciate the different viewpoints on this energy issue, which we've provided over the last couple of weeks. Now, going back to the idea of social capital, which was sort of the theme of the introduction here, social capital and happiness. That's what I was alluding to at the beginning of the show. I have a different sort of call to action this week. So there's this really interesting book that my wife read and then she, you know, she gave it to me and I, I thought it sounded interesting because who doesn't want to learn about how to be happier? So it's this book called The Little Book of Hygge. That's spelled H-Y-G-G-E, Danish Secrets to Happy Living. It's written by a guy named Meek, M-E-I-K, Viking, W-I-K-I-N-G, sort of like Viking my favorite football team with a W. Anyway, he's the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. Apparently, the Dutch are the happiest people in the world or some of the happiest people in the world, and this guy does research on happiness. It's fascinating, and it's worth the read. After all, at the end of the day, what's more important than being happy, right? I would say that 
happiness is a significant part of being wealthy or that you really can't be wealthy without being happy. Anyway, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.